Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is the author of six books and one spoken word publication, award-winning photographer, journalist, editor, essayist, novelist, and novellaist, Stephen Scarfield. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, before we begin chatting, can I ask you please to just read to us a little bit from Unaccountable Hours? Uh, certainly, certainly I'd love to. Um, Unaccountable Hours is a collection of three novellas. Um, and this short reading is from the second of the three, which is called Like Water. The story is about Beatrice um, B, who is 72, and Matthew, a young man who's on the cusp, I suppose, of finding out you know, who and what he will be. I believe in mentors helping young people into adulthood, in setting good examples, uh, and I believe in our responsibilities in that. B and Matthew enjoy a genuine romantic friendship. Uh, B is there for him um, throughout this sort of period when he's he's growing up, I suppose. Um, I should also explain that uh, Like Water is, is the only of the three that's written in first person. So this is this is Matthew. That night, I slept on B's sofa for the first time under a light piece of purple cotton that she'd brought back from India decades before. I dreamt of being at such a family wedding as she had described. I dreamt that they painted our hands with henna, and when I looked, I was confused as to whether their dots were traditional Indian or Australian Aboriginal patterns. I was confused about their relative time scales. Beatrice's sofa smells of time and silk and horsehair. It smells of memories as sharply metallic as Christmas tinsel and bodies as familiar as siblings. It is stuffed as full and as lumpy as luggage and it sags like tiredness. It is long enough to lie stretched on without bending your knees, a great brown four-seater runway stretching to the French doors and the roaring ocean night beyond. It rolls you backwards across its cushions and cradles you in the V against its coiled, gutted back. You feel the long crack of it open up like a clam and swallow you into a mystically soft, tonguey mouth of red velvet. It protects your head and feet behind low, timber-topped arms. I sleep a wild, musty, rolling, shippy sleep here, dodging in and out of worlds of waking and not, the realities mixing into a satisfying confusion of possibility, possible unrealities and unconvincing truths. In a waking moment, I recall the textures and tastes and fragrances of my grandmother's creamy, spongy, fruity, jelly-bound colour palettes of trifle, cocooned and cupped in their best crystal glass bowl. Like tonight, a triumph of seemingly incompatible, making complete and utter sense. I enjoy my awakeness as much as my sleep. It is luxurious to be conscious and drifting and totally happy. I feel safe and stimulated. Before dawn, the temperature dips, and I pull over me a second piece of cloth, which B left near my feet. It is of light wool, blue and red and orange, and resonating with cultural differences. It is the cloth of a Maasai chief. It has a story B's told me. She was handed it, washed and folded neatly, and brought it home with her. It smells of river water, masculinity, the confidence of history, the knowledge of land and culture. 
The air in the room breathes and sighs with each gust through the window frames and eight-paned doors. In the morning, the phone wakes me. Can you get it for me, please? B calls through the splash of shower, and I leap towards it and snatch it up before it hops onto the answering machine. Hello, I say the number. Can I help you? B, I'm afraid she's not available at the moment. Perhaps I could take a message and get her to call you back. I write the woman's first name and number on the pad next to the phone and the message. All arrangements in place, please ring to confirm you'd like to make a booking. I thank her, say I'll pass the message on, and we'll get back to her. We'll get back to her. B comes in wrapped, unusually in nothing but a large white bath towel. It is a fleeting thing done in her excitement at realising what the telephone conversation implies. The look that passes between us is unusual and deeply intimate. Thank you for that. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, about B and Matthew, because um, their relationship is a fascinating one in many ways. Certainly it scandalizes the neighbor, Mrs. S. <laughs> it does. It does. And, I mean, it's, it is an innocent love, you know. I mean, it is a love between them. And, you know, there's a lesson in that, in, in how we judge things, I suppose. Um, as I say, I think... I, I, it was interesting to me to have. I, I, I'm very interested in the whole mentoring up here. It was interesting to have her as a, as a woman mentoring uh, Matthew, I suppose. Yes, and in a way, she's also healing him, isn't she? I mean, he's in some ways he comes to her with with problems, with hurt, you know, broken in a way, and um, and she provides a kind of connection, doesn't she? She she calls to mind in a way that might be unhealthy, but it isn't. Um, you know, his own past, his own history, his own family. Yes, that's quite true. And and you're exactly right that she does heal him. And, you know, and that's partly, I think, just a result of her experience of the world. She's just one of those gorgeous ladies who's had a full life and is still vibrant and still sensual, you know, at her age. Um, and she has all those attractive qualities, you know, which he can see, but... She also has this fantastic experience, and I, I love this idea of, of being able to pass on the experiences. And I like it between her as a woman and him as a, as a young man who's, as you say, is very torn. And, you know, probably at that stage, you know, his life can go in any direction. You know, he's he's so torn between here and other places and between the 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 elegant in him and the the rough in him, I suppose. Yes, yeah, so she brings the confidence of history. <laughs> Quite true, yes. Yeah. So beautifully put it. Um, now, the title, Like Water, um, does that refer to the secret? Well, yeah, the secret, the secret is, um, you know, is, for me, is, is the river here at night, you know, and the secret's being not specifically that, but being on the water or being somewhere private, which is actually, it's actually a very public place, but you can find private spaces, I suppose, and that's the secret. Um, I mean, I travel a lot, and but I never feel I'm away because I'm always in the middle of my life, and I'm always sort of in the middle of the secret. Um, I think we need to, as the world gets busier, developing those secret spots um, within the public regime are, are quite interesting, you know, 
Um, but the secret specifically in this story is, is paddling kayaks on the river at night, which is, which is what I do. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it's about, about that, I must say. And that's the water, I suppose. It's the water, you know, and, and the, opening, um, the opening sequence in this is, is about being in the water, you know, it's about being underwater, and that's, I mean, that's sort of emblematic of, of where he is in his life as well. You know, he's sort of struggling to find the surface and find oxygen. Um, and the end of the story, um, you know, refers back to that again. So, yes, it's, it's the, the whole water theme throughout it. And finding, I guess, as, as a youngster, you know, if, if we carry on talking about kayaks and rivers, you know, I mean, we all love rapids, you know, we all love being thrown around and the excitement of that. But, you know, perhaps as you get older, you find that deeper, stiller water has its, has excitements, you know, has different temperatures at different levels, and that, that deeper water is probably more interesting um, as you get older. Yes, almost as a moment of sort of Buddhistic detachment when you you feel yourself at one with everything around you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and it, well, it's perhaps a sweeping statement to say it's to do with age, but certainly for me it was to do with age. And, you know, writing fiction, you know, came with, with age for me. Um, that, you know, it's it's something that comes out of all of my other writing, but I didn't really start writing fiction until I was 40. Um, and needed a sort of critical mass of experience and specific knowledge of areas and... You know, it, it just came together in a great big ball at, at one moment, you know, when I, I felt I could float fiction on, onto that or compress that into fiction is probably a better phrase, really. Mm. Now, the stories themselves, the three novellas, they seemed to me, when I was reading, particularly a second time, to be deliberately, you know, intricately linked. Did you write them as a set or did was that just something that happened um, ser um, serendipitously? No, they are a set. They are a set. Well, I'm I'm so pleased that that you feel that and said that. They are a set, and um, yeah. I mean they are genuinely. For me, they're genuinely three novels that are sort of condensed. You know, it's a bit like cooking. You know, just sort of reducing, reducing, reducing. That they are reduced um, into a perhaps a more viscous, a more um, dent, a denser form. But they are connected um, by you know, service of the landscape, by ethics, by ethical dilemmas, by good people, you know, they're populated by good people, I think. And um, so, yes, they, they are. And, and I'm interested to hear, hear your view of the links. But I'm also interested in what you just said about um, rereading them because I'm sort of hearing, it's interesting with books, isn't it? You don't know what you've actually done until someone tells you. Um, that's how I feel about it, you know. I'm hearing from readers that, you know, they're finding um, that each of the novellas sort of takes time to read, you know, perhaps as much time as the full novel would have taken. And that, that a lot of people are talking about rereading them, reading them twice before they move on to the next one and considering them more. So it's a, kind of a different reaction, different, interesting sort of um, more thoughtful and a slower process and uh, interesting reaction for me to the reading of them. Well, I think when you read a first time, often it's for plot, so you know, and for character. But but I think you read in the progression of the story. You know, you've got time's arrow driving you forward. Whereas you know, as you go back, 
you you bring the knowledge of what you've already read in the other novella mm. to you know rereading the first one and then you say oh my my goodness I can see a direct parallel between what happens with this character and what happens with that character. Oh, good. Oh well, that's good. Thank <laughs> yes, you. Yes, <laughs> and one of those parallels certainly that struck me instantly was. Um, you know, in Ethical Man, what happens with that character, and I don't want to give anything away, but, you know, in terms of um, of that and in terms of what happens with uh, the, the father and the luthier. Well, yes, yes. Um, you know, ethical dilemmas are something I, you know, one of my big themes, interests. Um, and certainly um, for both of those characters, you know, face, you know, just face traumas. Um, and I think also with, you know, I mean, it's important to me that both those characters are men um, because, I mean, my, my last novel, uh, which was called Other Country, was very much about men's dilemmas as well. Um, so this continues a, a theme of thought. As I mean, a lot of the themes in this book um, are things that I've been thinking about and working on well, all my life, you know, they are my, my interests and themes. Um, even with um, with the luthier, you know, about this uh, maker of stringed instruments. I mean, that's a co- I've collected material on, on that since I was eight, you know. So, and I there's one line in it that I actually wrote on the Morven Hills where I grew up in England when I was 15, for sure. So, um, as, as I often say. If I've got one talent, it's for filing, so I, <laughs> I've kept that. Is it a writer's talent? I mean, whether it's in you know in hand, hand filing or in the head. Um, well, it's both. Uh, both things surprise me a bit. Um, my, my friends do call me Mr. Neat, but that's that's beside the point. But when I, I started work as a writer on um, September the ninth, nineteen seventy-seven working for a, a magazine, and the editor of the day told me to never throw away a notebook. And I haven't had another instruction yet, so I have every notebook that I've ever used. And they are all cross-referenced. And I must tell you, well, for the Luthier, for example, I mean, I went back to interviews with great violinists um, that I did in the 1980s, um, with you know Luthiers um, here in Alaska, in the Yukon, um, a First Nation lady who's making violins in Whitehorse in Yukon, for example, who is also a moose tufter. Um, so I, I could go back to their words and the list of timbers that they use and, you know, terms that they use. So there's a very specific collection which which goes on. But then, I, I mean, I, it, it does intrigue me, even as the writer, that I'll start you know, uh, scenes, I can describe scenes in detail that, um, that, you know, from a snatch, a little glimpse 25 years ago, you know, it's as clear as day to me. Um, I can't always find the car keys, but I can remember that. So there you are. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's because your mind is on that rather than the <laughs> That's very kind uh, of you. <laughs> of course. I've got to protect us all. Uh, <laughs> But um, but do you don't actually do you craft instruments at all yourself? Um, no, I um, well I play instruments and I've had three instruments made for me, um, which is so you know you have to participate in the process pro, in the process I should say of having the instrument made. Um, I, I'm 
I'm kind of woodworky, and when I was a young man, I um, was a bit involved also with wood carving and so on. Um, in fact, I might tell you, because this is how things start to cross over one another. When I was a young man, I had a fantastic mentor, uh, a man called Arthur. I was probably 16, 15, 16. He was a wood carver, and I worked with him, and he introduced me to literature that I'd never heard of, you know, Canute Hampson, you know, Norwegian writers and so on. And he was just a, a massively important figure to me. And when the last novel came out and with all humility, you know, got some notice and won an award and so on, these things, I, I wrote to him, I wanted to say all this to him, um, how important it was, his influence on me and bundled up some other books I'd done and sent this parcel to him. And I got a letter back saying he didn't remember me. So, which was an interesting thing too. We all live different lives, you know. We all have different importances, I suppose. Um, mm. But certainly woods, timbers. And then for me, particularly with the West Australian landscape, you know, that's all relevant because West Australia is all about geology. Um, that's the modern resources boom. But also... I mean, it's the same landscape. I've been to a place here that they call um, the Cradle of Life. I've been there with NASA scientists. And this was the original life forms on Earth were created in, you know, appeared in Western Australia. So the story here is all about geology. The geology, you know, all those minerals find their way into the trees, you know. So it's, it's, it's a landscape um, that is you know, displays itself then in these very unusual hardwood trees. Um, so all of that ties in beautifully for me with, with a story about making instruments, you know. And then the, the sound, you know, every, a good luthier, every selection they'll, they'll make of timbers is towards a sound. So suddenly you've kind of got from the geology to the landscape, displaying itself in sound, which is fascinating to me anyway. Mm. And, and it also brings up the, what happens in light water, where you've got this duality between sort of the European high culture, of which of which the, the music in Freeman's life is so much um, rooted in, and yet the landscape of Western Australia with the, the timbers that actually form that music. Well, that's right. And, you know, once again, it's, it's a generational thing. It's... Um, Living in Australia is, for me, is you know, to my mind, I should say, is is rather like living with a teenager. You know, we're sort of going through puberty. It's a young country, and and there are all sorts of problems with puberty, as we know. Um, whereas, you know, other countries, and I obviously I travel. You know, I mean, I travel a lot. It's what I do for my day job, if you like. And um, you know, older countries. Italy is a good example, you know, and it's an easy counterpoint for me with, with Australia because, you know, you've got these older complexities, you've got a different sort of, or more sophistication in, in culture and so on. And yet, you know, contrasting with that, and, and in this story in particular, um, you know, the luthier, Alton Freeman is a young Australian, first generation instrument maker, which allows him to be innovative, um, which is very much Australian sort of story, you know. And yet, if you look at the great 
violin making families houses in Cremona in Italy which is the, the sepulcher of violin making over six or seven generations the violins are exactly the same I mean when you analyze them and they have been analyzed not only the dimensions but obviously the timbers but even the lacquers the glues are exactly the same but somewhere in that you become moribund so you had these great violin making houses then making replicas of great violins because they've lost the ability to be innovative so the, those generational issues are very important to me. Once again, just to talk about um, other country, the novel, it was exactly about that. It was about two young men trying to break out of this recurring, nasty male family history and breaking out to make new lives for themselves. And they're questioning their abilities to do that. Now, the Luther to me is the same story um, in that you just go with the history until eventually you, you kind of drown in the history or you make your own decisions and say, well, we're going to make this different. And of course, his daughter, Spit, makes it different again, and yet the same. Yeah, I love Spit. Um, <laughs> Spit's fun, and she's a, she's a violinist, you know, and I've been fortunate to meet and know, you know, terrific just great, great violinists and uh, young violinists, very talented, and to stand next to the most amazing violins and hear them played, you know, within feet of me. And that experience is enormous. And Spit kind of represents all that. I'm also quite interested in, um, you know, I mean, I like being serious. Uh, I think being serious is just as valid as being cheerful. And, you know, we, we're kind of, the modern world, you know, everyone's got to be happy and cheerful all the time. But I, I, um, I like, I'm interested in the sort of modernisation, the, the contemporary, you know, presentation of a lot of young players and classical music. You know, it's all going to be a bit hip and groovy. Um, and she sort of represents that. I, um, I'm not sure. I, I say I like serious players, and I like it when one of these young, hip, groovy players is suddenly seen for their absolute ability. I think that's a, a nice moment. Yeah, so she's almost a synthesis, isn't she, of the male and female too. I mean, she brings in this kind of Earth Mother quality from her mother. Yes. And and Freeman's sensitivity and, you know, his very serious nature. Yeah, yes, she does. Yes, you're, you're, yeah, I, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. You, you, you've hit something there I didn't realise. It's nice to hear it back, you know, what, um, how people find these things. Yes. And then I, I looked at Milner's ethics, you know, <laughs> sort of that is almost the other extreme. Yeah. That you take out that female equation. <laughs> yeah, poor old Milner. The female perspective, of course. Yeah. But, you, you know, if you take out that, that sort of, um, that holistic picture and you take, you know, that ethic to the extreme. Mm. Yeah, that's quite true. I mean, Milner is, is a scientist and, but he's aware of, you know, I think increasingly we're aware of, um, I mean, we're obviously aware of environmental issues and world issues, but increasingly we're aware of our part in it, you know, and we're always reminded, we're constantly reminded of our part in it. Um, you know, I mean, I fly a lot every time I get on the plane, you know, goodness, that, that brings that into question. So we're all implicated in, you know, it's just a numbers game. I mean, there are just so many people on the planet 
that everything we do has an implication. He's very aware of that, becomes very aware of that. And I think once you become aware of deep ecology of the fact that, you know, if you wear cotton, you know, the, the amount of land and water and shipping and goodness knows else. I mean, everything we do has this massive backstory. Um, and once you become really tuned into that, life becomes pretty difficult. I mean, and he he's such an ethical person that, um, you know, faced with faced with dilemma after dilemma, and, and bringing emotion into his science brings you know a massive dilemma for him. Um, and I think this is you know this is something that we do see in the scientific community. There's a, there's a new branch of it which thinks that emotion is part of science, which is interesting. So I'm not interested in that. Um, but certainly for him, none of these things, you know, our ethics, our beliefs. Um, you know, you mentioned Zen-like qualities or our, you know, beliefs if in, in sort of you know, Buddhist thought or whatever it is. None of that's worth anything until it's tested. You know, they're, they're great ideas, but it's only when you test them that you find out whether you believe them. And uh, and certainly, you know, Milner's faces, you know, the ultimate, you know, big ethical test of his uh, of his beliefs. Yes, and and yet the six. I mean, he's in some ways he's simultaneously laudable and ludicrous as well, going to such extremes. But but the sixth extinction is real. It's a real yeah, book. Absolutely, it's 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 real. Um, it's something I've been uh, following writing about for you know for a long time, and um, it was a great moment for me, or not a great moment, but it was a you know, cataclysmic moment when the the Natural History Museum in um, in New York, you know, has a sixth extinction hall now. You know, so they, I thought that was a very interesting public recognition. That was a long time ago when I was there working with a with a photographer, and uh, I was just blown away to walk into this place and go, my goodness, this is now, you know, it's not a secret anymore. Um, and and obviously, you know, in in Australia is such an old sensitive um, landscape that um, pretty much anything you do has has a massive impact, you know, because a lot of it's original landscape. This is a fundamental difference. So if you're, um, you know, going to turn an arable field in England, which hasn't seen an oak forest for you know many, many hundreds of years, if you're going to turn that into a housing estate, that's one thing. But if you're turning original landscape into a housing estate, that's another thing, you know, because you are losing, um, you know, you're really disrupting species. So it's a very big issue here. Yeah. Yes, and also the, of course, the cultural differences, the the um, original peoples. Um, you know, you mentioned the blanket and and all of that 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 yeah. Rossi picks up, but also, you know, the Aboriginal settlement that that Milner is struggling with as well. And you know, there's there's a lot of things going on with the land, isn't there? There is. There's a lot of things going on with the land. I mean, the book, but in our lives and. Um, it's yes. I mean, there's such a um, you know there's such a time. A lot of the, a lot of the story is about time scales as well. You know, I mean, as like water is, it's about the geological time scale and the human time scale. So, um, and somewhere in the middle of that is the Aboriginal time scale. You know, as humans, you know, we we do think about the last you know two thousand years, obviously. Four thousand years, if you want to think about 
you know, Egyptian history, but suddenly we're looking at petroglyphs, you know, here that are 50,000 years old, you know. So um, the the landscape here has many timescales, and some of them are pretty confusing. Um, so I, that, that's a big issue for me too, but I think that... Um, Just the, you know, the, the presence or our position in the landscape here is unusual because it's such a strong old framework upon which we have contemporary lives. It, 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 particularly in West Australia now, where the, the, the resources industry is, is you know, is driving Australia's economy, as we may all know. Um, that the contribution from West Australia is so enormous for the national economy, it's 30-40%. Um, and that's, that's, this is this original landscape I'm talking about. You know, which, mm. It's the same thing that, that I revere as a, almost as a persona, as an entity. You know, it's the same things we're digging up. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to explain, but I say that, that somehow then the fact that People who fly and fly out and earn lots of money doing that can can have all the modern conveniences and pleasures is to do with the fact that you know this is where life began. It's just it's strange thoughts. Yes, and a, a wonderful contrast with the you know the, the teenagehood of our um, of the people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're almost out of time, unfortunately. But um, tell me, are you working on a new book? Can we have a hint? Uh, I w I'm working on a new book. Um, it, I've almost worked on a new book. Um, it's a book which, at the moment, we, you know, we're calling um, "As the River Runs." It, it's set in the landscape, also very heavily. It's a progression of well, all of these thoughts actually. It is to do with about landscape environmental issues it goes into editing on june 1 um i've just put four very big days into uh, one of the characters there they're a nice bunch um it surprises me a bit there are there, there are aboriginal characters um it's set in the kimberley and it's say so it's a progression really of the ideas in other country and in this book, Unaccountable Hours. So yes, there is another book and it's not too far away. Wonderful. Well, that's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. And you can find out more at your website, which is www.stephenscourfield.com. So thank you for joining me today and don't forget to join us next month when we chat with poet neuroscientist and professor of anatomy, Ian Gibbons, who will drop by to talk to us about his new book, Urban Biology. See you then. Bye.